Open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 14. Our text this morning is Acts 14, verses 19 through 23. Uh, Last Sunday, we saw Paul and Barnabas in Lystra, where the people concluded that they must be gods in human form because of the signs and wonders that they did there. This morning, we'll see how quickly the people turned on them when some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and spoke against them. But before we hear the reading of God's word, let's pray. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up. And entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all come up and join me. All right, guys, I want to introduce you to somebody. I'll show you his, his picture. This is my friend Corby. Corby. Uh, And he and I, just the other day, had an adventure. We grabbed our bikes and went up Raccoon Mountain. Uh, It's uh, over near Chattanooga, outside Chattanooga. And we had a goal to make it from the top of the mountain down to the bottom alive. (laughs) And it was not easy. The, The trail actually started where we had to go up the hill, up the mountain, before we could go back down. Wasn't that kind of a mean trick to make us go up like that? Uh, And on top of that, somebody had put tree roots and rocks all along the trail, which meant that we were going uphill and over bumps. Uh, But we had to keep going. We had to keep going. Eventually, though, we got to the highest point, which meant that the really fun part, the downhill part was about to begin. But, you know, that was actually kind of hard too because speed plus gravity plus sharp turns plus more roots and rocks, what does that equal? Challenging. Yes, indeed. Uh, uh, I think the word that was used in the first (coughs) service was disaster. Uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was dangerous, uh, and you can actually still see all the mud that splattered all over my bike, uh, it, and that tells us that the trails were pretty wet at that time. Uh, and your bike? Yeah, this is my bike. Uh, wet dirt and leaves just made it all the more dangerous. But here's the good news. My friend Corby had, read, had ridden that section of trail several times. Uh, he knew all the dangers. He knew the trickiest spots. And he went on ahead of me, and that helped me know which way I was supposed to go, how fast I was supposed to be going. 
And, and he would also even stop from time to time to coach me on what was coming up ahead. And, and I felt a lot better. I felt a lot better knowing I could trust him to look out for me. And so after an hour or so of writing and me going over the handlebars three times, Corby and I made it down to the bottom. We were muddy and I was a little bloody, but we had conquered Raccoon Mountain together and it was totally worth it. I would do it again. Well, you guys understand the way that Paul describes our life as Christians kind of sounds like that. Uh, in, in what we just read, he, he's telling us, hey guys, we are on our way. We're on this, advent, on, on this adventure heading toward God's kingdom. We started this adventure by trusting in Jesus. And Paul says, keep going. Keep trusting in Jesus. Continue in the faith. But he also says something kind of challenging for us. He says, as we continue trusting in Jesus, we should expect things to be hard. He says that through, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, what he's saying, look guys, following Jesus is good, but following Jesus is not always easy. There are uphills and downhills and both are full of difficulties and dangers. I mean, did you actually catch what happened to Paul right before he said that? People had thrown stones at Paul until they thought he was dead. But God raised him up again. And, and as he's telling people this, as, he, as he's saying, keep going, guys. Keep following Jesus. Keep trusting him. It means that the people who were listening to him could probably see the cuts and bruises of those stones. They could see the marks still on his face and body. And, and that means Paul knew firsthand that following Jesus is hard. And that's why Paul made sure that people had help. He appointed elders in all the churches that he went to. Uh, elders who would guide people and encourage them when it's hard. Kind of like my friend Corby was encouraging me and helping me when it was hard on the trail. And, and the good news is you guys have elders too. Uh, elders in this church and, and other wise Christians like your parents to help encourage you and, and, and help you when it's hard to keep trusting in Jesus too. But you know, guys, we, are, we also have something even better than that. We have Jesus himself to carry us through the hard things that we face. Don't forget, Jesus has scars too. Do you remember that? He's got scars too. And he has walked this path ahead of us. And we can trust him to take care of us all along the way. Now it's, cause it's true, like Paul and Jesus himself, we might end up with some cuts and bruises from the hard things that we face along the way. But don't let that difficulty get you down. Because if we keep going, if we keep trusting in Jesus, keep relying on the help that he gives us through his church, then soon and very soon, we're going to see our king face to face. And because he sets that joy before us, that's another reason why we call this good news. You believe it? All right. Thanks, y'all. You can go back. If you haven't done so already, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. 
As Sam said, our text this morning is uh, Acts chapter 14, uh, verses 19 through 23. And if you've been with us the last few Sundays, you you may remember that this is the, the continuation of a, of a narrative that we have been following. Back in uh, chapter 13, uh, we saw Paul driven out of Pisidian Antioch by uh, the devout women and the leading men of the city after he had fruitly, fruitfully preached the gospel there for some time. And from there, he went to Iconium where again he uh, preached the gospel first in the synagogue, but also to the Gentiles. And, and there again, both a great many Jews and Gentiles believed. But there again, he also faced opposition. Luke says that there was an attempt made by some to mistreat and even stone Paul there in Iconium. And so, just like before, Paul left Iconium under threat, uh, this time going to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia. In Lystra, Paul did not go to the synagogue this time, probably because there wasn't a synagogue to go to, but he, but he did continue to preach the gospel, and that, that gospel was, continued to be validated by the signs and wonders that he was performing. And one such sign was the healing of a man who had been crippled from birth. As we saw last Sunday, when this man stood up and began walking around, the people of the city were utterly astounded and amazed. And Luke says that they began shouting in their native tongue, the gods have come down to us in the image of men. They thought that Barnabas was Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the primary speaker. Now, obviously, that's not the response that, that Paul and Barnabas had hoped for. And when they realized what was going on, they, they objected strenuously, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? Do not worship us. We are, we are mere men of like nature with you. And they, they pleaded with them, and they encouraged them to instead turn to the living God, the maker of heaven and earth. But Luke says that even with these words, they were scarcely able to keep the people from offering sacrifices to them. And so in the, the first moments of, of Paul's ministry there in Lystra, the, the people thought that they were gods come in human flesh. But this morning we see how quickly their tune changed. Because Luke writes in verse 19 that some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, the, the cities where Paul had been previously. Jews followed him to Lystra, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Just think about that for a moment. These, these Jews who had driven Paul out of Antioch and then out of Iconium, they were not content to simply be rid of him. They wanted to silence him once and for all. They wanted to kill him, and so they followed him to Lyconia, and they stirred up the crowds there against him and had him stoned and dragged out of the city. But we read that God protected Paul. Luke tells us that when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. Now this is not going to be our focus this morning, but I, but I don't want us to miss the wonder of this. Luke's account is extremely understated, but, but understand what's going on here. The, the crowds had thrown stones at Paul in order to kill him. They had repeatedly buffeted his body with, with, with rocks, and they, they did it effectively enough that they thought he was dead, and they dragged him out of the city. And yet, when the disciples gather around him, probably for the purpose of, of collecting his body that they might bury him, 
Luke stands up and walks back into the city. That is a miracle on, on par with the healing of the layman. This is, this is God's miraculous working to protect his servants. As I said, it's not our focus, but I don't want you to miss the, the wonder of this. And I don't want you to miss the wonder of the fact that Paul goes back into the city. He goes back into the city and he, and he continues to preach. We're told that he goes on to Derby, another city of Lyconia, and there he preaches the gospel again and makes many disciples. But it's at this point that, that Paul decides to, to turn around and to head home. This is the, uh, the, the, the final stop on his first missionary journey. But we notice that he doesn't head straight home. The, the shortest path back to Antioch in, in Syria where he had started, the, the shortest route would have been just to head straight east. But instead, Paul goes south, retracing his steps. He goes back to Lystra. He goes back to Iconium. He goes back to Pisidian, Antioch. He goes back to the very places from which he had been chased by the people who wanted him did. And so we were forced to ask, why? Why would Paul do this? Why would Paul retrace his steps? Why would he go back to these places uh, where he had been persecuted? And Luke gives us the answer. He, he tells us that he revisited these places so that he might strengthen the souls of the disciples who had come to faith through his ministry. All along the way, Paul had been planting churches. He had been uh, preaching the gospel, calling people to faith in Christ, and establishing churches in these various uh, places. And he wanted to go back to those churches and to, to encourage them and to, to strengthen them. And it is this strengthening ministry that I want us to focus on this morning. And there are really three aspects of this ministry that I want us to consider. First, I want us to see that Paul exhorts the disciples to continue in the faith. This is his, his fundamental, foundational exhortation. They are to continue in the faith. So we need to understand what that means. Second, we need to see that, that Paul reminds, or he might even say warns these disciples, that as they continue in the faith, they will experience many tribulations until they enter the kingdom of God. They're going to continue in the faith, but it's going to be hard. It will, it will involve moving through tribulations. And because of this, because Paul knows the trials that they will face, the third thing that he does is entrust them to God's care. So these are the three aspects of Paul's ministry. He, he exhorts them to continue in the faith. He warns them that doing so will involve passing through many tribulations, and he entrusts them to God's care. So let's look first at uh, the, the, the exhortation to continue in the faith. This is what Paul is calling them to. This is, this is Paul's summary of the Christian life. They are to continue in the faith. So what does that mean? Well, at the very least, it means that they must continue believing the gospel that they had believed at first. They, they, had, they had heard the gospel proclaimed by Paul, and they had, they had believed that gospel. They had received and, and rested upon Jesus Christ. They had exercised faith in him. And Paul is now saying that they must continue to believe that gospel. Faith is not a one-time action. It is not something that you do once and then never have to do again. But rather, faith is an ongoing, continuous action. It, it is something like a state of being that you enter into. You, you enter into a state of faith, the state of resting upon Jesus Christ, a, a state of, of, of relating to him as your Lord and Savior. And disciples must continue believing. They must continue in faith all of their lives. 
But I want you to see that, that Paul's exhortation is more than just a call to continue believing the gospel. It's, more, it's not that Paul just exhorts them to continue in faith, but notice, he exhorts them to continue in the faith. The phrase, the faith, is a phrase that, that refers to the gospel that Paul had preached. Think of Jude exhorting the Christians to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The, the faith is that, that body of, of truth that was proclaimed to the church through the apostles' ministry. It is that, that body of teaching, that, that sound doctrine, Paul calls it elsewhere. That, that teaches us who God is and, and who Jesus is and, and how the Spirit relates to us and, and how we can be forgiven and reconciled to God and empowered to, to live for Him. And so Paul is exhorting the disciples to continue in this faith, in the faith, in the, in the, the, the gospel proclaimed by the apostles to the church. And this suggests to us that there is a, a way of life, a, a path, a, a life form, as Francis Schaeffer called it, that accords with the faith. There's a, there's a way of living that is in accord with the truth of who God is as he is revealed to us in the scriptures. There's a, there's a way of living that accords with the truth of, of who Jesus Christ is for us as our, our prophet, priest, and king. There is a, a way of living that accords with the truth of who the Holy Spirit is now filling us as his people. And we are to walk in that way, that way that accords with the faith. It's what Paul elsewhere refers to as the footsteps of faith. This is the path that Abraham walked. Abraham believed God and then he lived accordingly. His, his, faith, his life was transformed by that faith. His, li his faith gave shape to every aspect of his life. Abraham walked in the footsteps of faith. And that is what Paul is now encouraging the disciples to do. They are to continue in the footsteps of faith. They are to continue in the, the path or the, the way of life that accords with the gospel. And so Paul's exhortation to, to continue in the faith, yes, it means that they must continue believing the gospel. But more than that, it, must mean, it means that they must continue living in a way that accords with that belief. They must live like they believe what they say they believe. That's the, the sum and substance of the Christian life. The Christian life is living as if we actually believe what we say we believe. So for example, we must live as if we really believe that God is the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-loving Lord. If we know that God is, is the all-knowing, all-wise one who, who actually knows what is best for us, how will that transform our lives? And how will it transform our lives even more if we know that, that not only is, is he all-knowing and all-wise, but he's also all-powerful and all-loving. He, he wants what is best for us and, and is able to bring it about. This is the God who is for us, the Almighty One, the All-Wise One, the All-Knowing One, the All-Loving All One. How should that transform the way we live in this present evil age? And more so, how should it transform our lives to know that we have been reconciled to this God through the redemption that is the forgiveness of sins in his blood? You're not trying to, to earn his favor. You're not trying to work your way back into his good graces. He is already for you because you have been justified and reconciled to him through what Christ has done for you. 
How ought that to, to transform the way that you, you live, knowing that you, you're not trying to prove yourself or earn anything. You're simply living out of what is already yours. And how would it transform your life to know that the all uh, immeasurable power of God that, that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in those who believe in the person of the Spirit? How would it transform our lives to know that we are not on our own, but that we are filled with the Spirit, empowered to do all that we have been called to do? These truths, they have impact. They, they, they have a shaping force. And we are to live in accord with these things that we have believed. That's what Paul means when he says that they are to continue in the faith. They are, they are to continue living like they believe the things that they say they believe. You see, Paul didn't make mere converts. He didn't make one-time professors of the faith who, who walked an aisle or, or prayed a prayer, but he made disciples. He made learners, he made followers of Jesus Christ, men and women who, in humble reliance upon the, the power of the Holy Spirit, are committed to following Jesus day by day by day. Such discipleship, such following, is inseparable from true faith. If you are not following, or if you are not endeavoring to follow after Christ in humble reliance upon His Spirit, then you have not really believed the gospel. Faith that does not seek to follow whatever it is is not biblical faith. It is not saving faith. James says it is merely dead faith. And this is a message that I, I am convinced the modern evangelical church needs to hear. Too many in the church today think of faith as something they, they did at some point in the past something they did when they were a kid or maybe, maybe after they got out of college, something they did in the past that has no real bearing on their life now. And I want you to hear me say that if that's the way you think of faith, if you think of faith as something you did in the past that, that really has no significance for your life today, then whatever else it was, it was not saving faith. Saving faith is a faith that transforms our lives it is, a, it is a faith that, that sends us in a new direction. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved to do good works, those good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And a faith that has no shaping impact on your life today is not a faith that unites you to Christ. It's not a faith that saves. So the world needs to hear this encouragement. But I think we need to hear this encouragement too. Those of us who, who are endeavoring to follow, we still need to know this. We still need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded that there is a way of life that accords with what we profess to believe. Because it prompts us to go back to what we believe when we see that our lives are becoming misshapen. And if you pay attention, you'll see that that happens every day. Every day we are, we are battered and, and, and buffeted by all sorts of lies. The lies of the world, the lies of our own flesh, the lies of the, the devil. Lies that, that seek to shape our life in a particular way. And those lives have an impact. We, we can't escape it. And so we need to fight against those with the shield of faith. <laughs> We need to, to fight against those lies, the shaping influence of those lives, by, by immersing ourselves in the truth, by, by letting God's word dwell in us richly. 
by, by soaking in the, the wondrous truths of the gospel. This is one of the reasons that, that Scripture commands us not to neglect gathering together for worship. Because what is worship? In worship, we gather in the presence of God to, to return to what we believe. You don't come here to hear something new. You come here to hear what you already know. I, I have nothing original to say. I, I can only repeat the grand truths that, that you, have, you have already believed, but that we need to be reminded of again and again and again because it's here in worship, it's here in God's presence that we are reclaimed by the gospel, that we are, are reestablished in the truth, and that we are set free from the, uh, the entanglements of sin and lies to again walk in the footsteps of faith. That's what Paul is doing. That's what Paul is, is calling us to. He's calling us to a commitment to continue in this faith. But he's also warning us that doing so is going to be hard. That's the, the second thing that we see here. The second thing that we see in, in Paul's strengthening ministry is that he warns the disciples that as they seek to continue in the faith, they will face tribulations of many kinds until they enter the kingdom. The tribulations won't end until they enter the kingdom. That's what he says explicitly there in verse 22. And certainly Paul's experience bears this out. We've just seen him stoned. And as Sam was saying to the kids, he, he probably still bore the marks of, of that stoning, even as he was saying these words to the disciples. And that stoning was not an isolated incident. In 2 Corinthians 11, he, he tells us that in addition to once being stoned, five times he received the 40 lashes minus one, and, and three times he was beaten with rods. And that's just the beginning. He, he goes on to mention all sorts of, of hardships that, that he had experienced, all sorts of persecution that he had suffered as a minister of the gospel. But what we need to see is that, that Paul's experience is not unique Paul is actually telling the disciples, rather, that, that his experience is, is normative for all believers. All disciples will experience many tribulations as they continue in the faith. It doesn't mean that we will all be, be stoned or, or beaten. That's not likely to, to happen to us in our present context. But we will experience tribulation. All followers of Christ will go through these sorts of troubles. This is no doubt why Jesus himself said that following him was, uh, was not easy, but hard. The way is narrow. It's like that mountain bike path that Sam was riding on. It is a way full of trouble. Now again, this doesn't mean that we should go looking for trouble. It doesn't even mean that we should passively accept whatever trouble comes looking for us. Remember, Paul didn't passively submit to the, the Jews' plans to have him stoned. He, he actually tried to get away. He tried to escape. Eventually, they caught up with him, but he, he tried to escape. We don't have to go looking for trouble or, or passively accept trouble. But we do need to understand that as we seek to follow after Christ, we will experience trouble. As we seek to continue in the faith, we will experience tribulations of many kinds. And therefore, we must be prepared to endure those tribulations when they come. Sometimes those tribulations will be specific, targeted persecution like Paul suffered here. It'll, it'll probably not be, as I said, people trying to stone us. But it may be people slandering us because we're followers of Christ. It may be obstacles to your promotion at work. It may be lawsuits that, that some in our, our context have experienced. 
There may be times when people specifically seek to do you harm because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. But sometimes the trouble you experience will be more general. The the general pains of living in a sin-torn world. Remember, in that list of tribulations that, that Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions not only the stoning and the scourging and the the beating, but he also mentions the ordinary hardships associated with travel in the ancient world. He speaks of shipwreck and robbers and rivers and exposure and, and hunger, to name just a few. There are troubles associated with just living in this present evil age. And we need to understand that that even though our king sits upon the throne, we are not exempted from those troubles. We will experience both targeted persecution and the ordinary tribulations of life in this present evil age. Receiving Jesus as Lord does not exempt us from such trials. If anything, it can intensify them because There may be ways in which we could have escaped, but we had to endure because of our calling. That's what we see here. Paul is is here putting himself in harm's way by returning to these cities because he has a calling to strengthen the disciples in these various churches. And we may experience the same thing. We may find that, that obeying Christ and doing the good works that he's prepared for us to do actually requires us to submit to more hardship than we might have otherwise endured. And so we must be prepared. We must be prepared to suffer the many tribulations that we will experience until we enter the kingdom. I know sometimes this this prompts us to to ask, why? Why would God set it up this way? Why would would God have his his people walk such a difficult path? I I can imagine that that many of you are are wondering, you know, why wouldn't God just keep Paul from being stoned? Why wouldn't he just thwart the plans of those who were trying to persecute? I mean, if you have to choose between not getting stoned and surviving a stoning, I understand both are miraculous, but but wouldn't it be better just not to get stoned? (laughs) You know, that, that would certainly be my preference. And yet, God doesn't. He doesn't work that way. He doesn't exempt his people from the, from the trials and the, the tribulations of this life. And I don't know why. I can't tell you. I, I don't always or even often understand God's ways. Sometimes I, I think I catch a glimpse of what he's doing. But I never fully comprehend his will. And the trials of this life... I'll just tell you, they, they sometimes leave me dazed and confused. They, they sometimes leave me asking, why? why? Why this? Why now? Why one more thing, God? Couldn't you have just exempted me from this? Why? And when I think about the trials and the tribulations that I know so many of you go through, as we, we hear about them and we seek to, to come alongside of, of you in the, the suffering as, as pastors, we often ask, why? Why, God? Why? And, and, and the reality is that God doesn't tell us. He doesn't always tell us what he is doing. He doesn't always tell us uh, uh, the, the good that he is working. But he does tell us to be ready. He does tell us it's coming. Despite our perplexity, he, he tells us to know that we will experience trials and tribulations in this life. And such knowing beforehand is important Because it prepares us to endure in faith when the trials come. I've often seen people angry at God. Angry at God for not doing something that they thought he should have done. 
but something that he never promised to do. They're angry. They, they think that he is unfaithful or untrustworthy because he has failed to do what they thought he should do. But it's something that he never said he would do. In fact, he told us. He told us beforehand that the path would be hard. He told us beforehand that, that following him would, be, would mean passing through the floods and the fires. What he promised is that they would not consume us that they would not overwhelm us, that they would not destroy us. What he promised is that he would be with us in the midst of the trials, that he would be, he would be our shepherd even in the valley of the shadow of death. You see, we need to know not why God does things the way he does them. We need to know that God promises to strengthen his children to endure the tribulations that are sure to come, to, to stand firm in faith, hope, and love with joy inexpressible, even as we walk the hard path that he has set before us. That's what we need to know, that God is with us and that one day he will bring us all the way home. One day we will enter into the kingdom, a kingdom of perfect righteousness and peace. A kingdom where, where there is no stain of sin, where there, there is no tear, there is no suffering. That is our inheritance, our imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. But it is not yet our full possession. What is our present possession? What is the, the guarantee of the, of the inheritance that has been promised? Paul tells us our present possession is the Spirit. The Spirit who, who comforts us and, and strengthens us to stand firm in the midst of every affliction. That is the promise of Emmanuel. That is the promise of God with us, that He is present, standing with us, not allowing us to be consumed, not allowing us to be overwhelmed. And that's what Paul want these, wanted these churches in Asia Minor to know. He, he wanted them to know that tribulations and trials were coming. And he didn't want them to be surprised. But he wanted them to know that they would be able to endure because God would be with them. That really leads us to our third point because, because what does Paul do? Having warned them that these tribulations are coming, what does he do? He entrusts them to God's care. Because he knows it is only by God's power that they will be able to endure. Look again at verse 23. Paul writes, And when, they had appointed, when he had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so having told the disciples that they must enter the kingdom through many tribulations, Paul proceeds to entrust them to the Lord's care. And I want you to understand that, that we must do the same thing. We, we must entrust one another to the Lord's care. God has bound us together as a, as a particular congregation of his church, as a, as, a, as a particular faith family. And we must support and encourage one another by, by committing one another to the Lord's care. And how does, how does that happen? It happens through prayer and through, through fasting, through that sincere and earnest prayer that, that asks God to, to be with us and to remember his promise to, to protect us and to preserve us and to, to strengthen us to endure. And this is the way that we must pray for one another. And if, and if you struggle to do that, if you wonder, well, how, how do I put that into words? I would encourage you to look at Paul's prayers scattered throughout his letters. 
Because this is precisely how Paul prays for the church. He's constantly praying for them to be strengthened and sustained, that they'd be filled with the knowledge of God's will, with all, all wisdom and discernment, that, they would, that their love would abound more and more, that they might be able to walk in the way that is excellent. This is, what God, this is how Paul prays, and it, it is a, a great starting point just to take his prayers and make them your own as you pray for one another. But I want to suggest to you that you ought to pray this way not only for one another, but that you ought to pray this way for yourself. <laughs> This is how you ought to pray for yourself. Whatever, whatever other petitions you're bringing before the Lord, whether it's a, a health concern or a work concern or a relational concern, whatever other petitions you're bringing before the Lord, they should, they should rest upon this foundation. God, strengthen me that I might continue in the faith. Strengthen me that I might walk in the path that you have set before me. Strengthen me that I might do those good works that you have prepared for me to do daily, consciously, through, through prayer, entrust yourself to God's care. Because it's only by his power that you will be able to walk in the way of faith. That you will be able to walk in the way that accords with what you have professed to believe. And I don't have time to unpack it fully this morning, but I want you to notice one last thing here. Even as we entrust ourselves to the Lord, we must entrust ourselves to his church. Did you notice that, that as Paul is entrusting the disciples to the Lord, he is appointing elders in every church? You see, Paul expects the, the strengthening, sustaining care of the Lord to be mediated through his church and through his elders, through, through the shepherds of that church. You see, it's, God doesn't expect us to, 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 to be isolated Christians. He, he expects us to dwell together in fellowship. He expects us to, to dwell together with, with one another so that we have people who will, who will weep with us when we weep and will rejoice with us when we rejoice, people who will help us bear our burdens, people who will speak words of encouragement and kindness when we, when we most need to hear them. Because yes, it is the Spirit who comforts us, but the Spirit's instrument is often God's Spirit-filled people. And so as you pray, as you pray for God to, to strengthen you and to sustain you, that you might continue in the faith, even in the midst of tribulation and hardship, as you make that your prayer for, for yourselves and for, for your family and for, for, for this church, as you make that your prayer, Put yourself in a position to receive what you're asking for. Because God has shown you where to find it. Where do you find the encouragement? Where do you find the strengthening? Where do you find the sustaining? You find it in a church shepherded by God's elders who feed the flock with the very word of God. In the church, as we gather together and worship according to the word, we will be strengthened. We will be sustained. And because God uses his church to sustain and strengthen his people, to continue in the faith, even in the face of tribulation, because Jesus does this for his people, and because he promises to bring us home to the kingdom one day, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do pray that you, that you would use your church and your, your people to cause this word to dwell in our hearts richly and to transform our lives and to bring forth fruit to the praise of your glory. Father God, this is the desire of our heart and we know that the way will be hard. We know that there will be rocks and, and roots in the path. But Father, we pray 
that you would strengthen us to endure in faith, hope, and love with joy until that glorious day when you bring us all the way home and into your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.